I think that's why average age of entrepreneurs, at least in the U.S., is still 40, 41. Because it's either you start out when you don't have that much money, but also don't have that much expense in your 20s, or it has to be further in your career when you built up a nest egg and you could take that risk. With Pivot is always the hard part, right? Hi, I'm Bernard Moon, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. Bernard Moon has been at the heart of the startup universe globally. He's the co-founder and partner at Spark Labs Group, a network of startup accelerators and venture capital funds known for energizing startup scenes. He's not just playing the game, he's changing it, with investments in over 500 startups worldwide. He's an advisor to renowned academic institutions and a seasoned writer for major technology journeys. We talk about his journey, the startup world, and expansion into multiple geographies, Saudi Arabia being the latest, what investors look for, AI and product. Here we go. This podcast is brought to you by GUT, fostering a culture of innovation to build better products, ventures, and cultures. I'm Maria, and I enjoy adding value and helping wherever I can, widening my spectrum of thoughts, even if it can sometimes challenge the mainstream. This is why we give data a voice and co-create a collective intelligence involving both people who are not always in the limelight and those who are, in order to learn from each other and spread knowledge and critical thinking. All I ask is to rate the show, leave a review, and share it. It's a fantastic way to help other podcast explorers discover our content. Now let's get started. Thank you so much for being here on Gut Talks. Bernard, I'm really excited about this episode and this season, I have some talking points and I guess I want to start with you. It's been 10 years since you started Spark Lab, right? Well, that's a uh, good timing. Yeah, I'm Bernard Moon. I'm a co-founder of Spark Labs and we launched 10 years ago. I, I guess sometimes it could seem like a long period to some people, but in the venture space, I think we're still like young pups. The firms that we compare ourselves to or aspire to be, they've been around, let, let's say, in Silicon Valley for 50, 60 years, or even in Korea, where we first launched, these firms have been around 30, 40 years. So we're still the new kids on the block and we're steadily growing, making an impact. And I think we're happy with our progress so far. We're an early stage venture capital firm. On one half, we have the startup accelerators, primarily in Asia, and we just recently launched in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And on the other half, we have regular venture capital funds. We have various seed funds, whether in the US or Asia. We have a Series A fund for South Korea. We just recently launched a Series B fund in South Korea and also a Series A fund related to our ag tech food tech accelerator in australia so we have different entities uh, across the globe thank you for that that's just to to set the scene a little bit so we're gonna get back to to the details but my, my first question to you is how did you first make your way into the world of entrepreneurship like how did you end up doing what you do today yeah so it was during the first internet boom it was in grad school when i was studying public policy at columbia and during my second year, two groups of friends asked me to join their startup. And so my initial career path and interest was in public policy and government. But 
during the first internet boom, it was crazier than any period since where everyone and their grandparents were wanting to do a startup. So two groups of friends asked me, one of them that I eventually decided to join full time was with my current Spark Labs co-founder, Jimmy Kim. So as Jimmy and Peter, we did our first video on demand company. And then the second one that actually took me back to Korea, first time living in South Korea as an adult, because I grew up in Chicago and lived in the U.S. I'm Korean American, but that second startup took me back to Korea in 2000 when we were back by SoftBank. And by that second startup, for sure, it's solidified with me that I love the chaos of company creation. I love taking a concept on a napkin to launching a new company. So that's how I dovetailed into the startup space and haven't left since. You mentioned you're Korean American, right? And I see actually a quote here. It's from an article on Inc. magazine, and it says that's the title. More than half of America's unicorns have immigrant founders, like four billion dollar company startups. And most of these founders are born outside the U.S., and have grown more than 500% since 2018. And some of the companies are like SpaceX, Stripe, Instacart, Discord, Myro. So if you reflect back on this, how did it shape you, the fact that you're Korean-American? Do you believe in the interconnection between, if you want your upbringing and the entrepreneurial mindset? And I want to highlight here that in Korea, there are lots of innovations like that. I didn't get the chance to see when I visited, but... There are hubs with lots of things happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, and there's been different studies, e even in the U.S. on this, is that my parents were entrepreneurs. I guess as immigrants, they started these small businesses that eventually became bigger. They started different retail sort of shops in Chicago, and then they grew that to some other, I guess, like small, mid-sized businesses. And then eventually they actually also brought a, a U.S. coffee chain to South Korea. And that's where okay. they grew it to about 12 stores and they sold it. So they've always been entrepreneurial. And I think that's where I still had, I guess, a secondary interest in that. Because even though I was interested in government and public policy, I would help them on some of their business planning and strategy. And so some of my close friends knew that. While I was in graduate school, that's also my friends in like banking and consulting and other sort of areas. That's when they would still want to bounce off ideas with me. So that's how I got pulled into those two startups back in 1998 and then eventually joined one of them at the end of graduate school. So I think my parents being immigrants, but, and also being entrepreneurs, that definitely was an impact. And then the Koreanness, I guess I could attribute to some of the, maybe some of the cultural aspects where they grew up, it's all about hard work and intensity, which even exists in some of the big company mantras that you see or hear about, whether it's Samsung or LG. So yeah. yes, Koreans are very generalizing. They're very strong in math and sciences, but also I do think the education system there, it sometimes sucks out the creative side of it because all they're doing is like memorizing facts and math equations and problems, et cetera. They compensate that, I think, by their sort of drive and tenacity. So I think there's been some like Samsung execs quoted saying that 
we can't out-innovate Apple, but we could outwork them. That's interesting. My background is in design and I had Korean classmates. And I remember they were, like all of them were really creative and really good. There definitely is strength in sort of design. As we see also in some, in our startups, even when we first launched in the end of 2012, is Koreans are very good at software development and then also like UX, UI for startups. Yeah. The other things are, I think some of the things that are lacking is, I would say at the top level, sort of general management skills and the ability to, part of it's tied to language because many aren't bilingual. So the ability to take it beyond South Korea startup to scale it beyond. Talking about Spark Labs, do you have a couple of stories from like that time, the humble beginning? Yeah. So the way that we launched was my co-founder, Hanju Ree, he started a company called Hostway and that he has a great story because he launched it in end of the 1990s, going into the 2000s, he started a hosting company. And obviously even when the market went through a downturn, it was just difficult to raise venture capital, but it proved out well for him and his co-founders because later they sold it to a private equity firm for about 500 million. But anyways, during that time, he also launched businesses and secondary operations in South Korea and India. And so he was traveling back and forth and spring of 2012, he wanted to grab lunch. So we met in San Francisco and he said, Hey, I think this is a good time because he was increasingly getting opportunities to angel invest. He wanted to formalize it. So he said, I think it's a good time to start a, a Y Combinator of South Korea. So he said, are you interested? And I just said, yeah, I'm interested. I think I'm busy with my own startup. So why don't we get a third? If we could get Jimmy on board, I'll do it. And so I had a call with my prior co-founder of my first two startups, Jimmy. And he at first was very hesitant. He was like, oh, I don't know if I want to deal with South Korean founders. And I was like, what? Why are you biased against your own race? So I think they'll be too difficult. And he's like, I don't know if there's enough startups. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, Techstars launched in Boulder or Denver Metro. It only has a million people. Seoul at that time, I think had 22, 23 million people. I was like, of course there's enough startups. So reluctantly, he finally agreed. And that's how we launched Spark Labs, the three of us. The first entity was Spark Labs Korea. And we launched the first batch in December, 2012. And it just grew from there. The market was already not crowded, but it, it, there was about 20 accelerators when we launched. So it was competitive. And our positioning was helping South Korean startups go global. So outside of Asia, because South Korean companies have already done fairly well regionally in North Asia, but not really outside of that. So we focus on that and I think our, our positioning service well, because we also executed. And then I would say by the end of 2015, we became the leading accelerator in South Korea and we felt like we could replicate that model. So that's when we expanded to Taiwan and same thing. It took a couple of years, but we became the leader there. And then we launched Spark Labs Cultivate in Sydney and Orange, Australia. And we had some hits and misses. And, and coming out of COVID, we have now launched in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So a question here, when you talk about Korean startups thinking primarily about their local market or Southeast Asia and the 
language factor as well. What was the main challenge? Because this is something that is not just, I will call it a problem, like a challenge of South Korea. It's in many places, actually. It's one is the language, one is they just think about their own geography. So how did you manage to change the mindset in that case? Yeah, so one is trying to give them a pathway and connections, right? So what, one example that we looked at was Israeli startups, right? So Israel is just small in itself. So a lot of times they look immediately to the U.S. and they've already had sort of these connections and relationships for, for you know, couple decades already. So we looked at that and we thought, hey, one thing is that we have to get our entrepreneurs to think bigger. So South Korea is interesting though, because since the late nineties, you can create multi-billion dollar unicorns in that market. So it's big enough, but also we think that they're short selling themselves and not really reaching their potential. So if you look in the nineties, there's companies like Nexon and Neighbor, they became market caps of 20, $40 billion. And also even in the early 2000s, there was like companies like auction.co.kr got bought by eBay for 1.3 billion. G market also got bought for a similar price. I think it was like 1.5 billion. Even recently there's been hyperconnect that was bought by match for, I think under 2 billion. So there's been these companies that come out of South Korea and most of the time they generate all their revenue from South Korea. We thought that they could go be bigger even because a lot of, a fair amount of South Korean companies, if you look at Nexon, they're the first actual MMO RPG game in the world that was launched in 1996. So they were trendsetters and even micro transactions that Facebook made popular globally, that all started in South Korea in the late nineties. So microtransactions in terms of power-ups in games, like 50 cents here, 25 cents there, a dollar for some sticker. That trend has all started in South Korea, but they didn't capture a global trend or create a global trend because of, I think, either language or comfort in just their own home market. So you guys took a big bet here somehow, right? I think your mission was to help them not actually just start, but scale and grow. And so what's your approach to risk-taking? How do you see this with the founders you help and nurture at a global scale? And I guess you started that in South Korea, because as you said, there are trendsetters, but then they're not the ones that take it to the next level. Not always, based on what you're saying. Yeah, so it's, it's still, a, I would say, a tempered approach because we're practical with our startup. If they've only raised a million, let's say, in seed capital, they can't all of a sudden yeah launch in the U.S. also at the same time. And some of them are very eager and they raise the million or two and they say, oh, we're going to go to the U.S. now. We tell them, no, don't. First, make sure you have your home market secure and then you raise your next round and then you could target your next market, whether it's the U.S. or a lot of times I think South Korean entrepreneurs, it's split between the U.S. and Japan. And then third market might be China at least over the past decades. It depends on obviously the product and the team and even our network, how we could help them out. And we help them map out what their next step is. So it's not like from the beginning, we tell them, hey, you should enter the US or concurrently or just go. But we make sure that they obviously have a thoughtful strategy and, and plan and also resources. So you invested in over 500 startups already? Yeah, I think it's tipped now 500. 
Yeah, we've tipped 500 startups across the globe, primarily in Asia and U.S. And and unicorns just yet. Yeah, there's been paper unicorns or companies that we've invested in more at the later stages, but that doesn't count for us because we're an early stage firm. So there's been some, I guess, paper unicorns right now that, that we're waiting to exit upon. Okay, that's a long-term game anyway. How did the model start and what did you improve based on what you had? Because it's been 10 years, you're in different geographies. I just want to know how, how did you start? How did you know learn and improve and iterate over time? And if you have specific things or elements you take into account based on each country, you go to yeah so when we looked at the models out there there's no sort of one way right way for yeah. us we thought that on the accelerator side because the venture capital side is more standard so for the accelerators yeah. from the beginning and i think it's worked out where we wanted to keep it at small batches so each batch now for each country target is 8 to 15 companies because we really want to get involved with each company and get to know the founder and build that relationship. Also, our approach is more more local. Instead of having one location, let's say Y Combinator, which is a global leader, and everyone comes to Silicon Valley, we wanted to, and it was planned where we wanted to be part of the ecosystem, help grow it, and also get to know all the different players. So I think we've meshed, even though we came into South Korea, where it was already, I would say, somewhat mature, we became an integral part of that startup ecosystem. Taiwan, there was already a few players, but we definitely have become one of the main hubs in Taiwan. And I would also say for Sydney and Australia. And then we hope to do the same in Saudi Arabia. Early on, we definitely had a fair amount of applicants from other countries. And this is before there was this boom and bust and rise of accelerators across the globe. We had a fair amount of quote-unquote foreign startups apply to Spark Labs Korea. And we took a few in, if, especially if they were looking for Asia entry. So that's why I think a fair amount of the startups apply and still apply to South Korea or even Taiwan is that they want an entry and relationships there. It could be a mobile startup because they want relationships at that time with Samsung or LG because of the mobile handsets. Or it could be gaming because also South Korea is a leader in online gaming. So there could be different sort of angles. In terms of the geographies itself, so when we look at, before we even enter a market, we have our own internal study of startup ecosystems globally. So we do that based on cities because we think each city is different, even the culture. You could look at Silicon Valley or the Bay Area, like San Francisco is very different than LA. The culture-wise business practices, Silicon Valley is driven by this pay it forward mentality where you share contacts and, and LA and the Hollywood culture is very different. I think they're very guarded. New York is a mix. I would say even not just culture, but we look at the investor ecosystem, how developed it is from angel to series A to series B funds, how many historical exits have been in that market and also the talent base. That's, that's number one in terms of the entrepreneurs. How many engineers are there? Are there software engineers? Are they more hardware engineers? And then even UI, UX to management talent. So these are all things that we consider when we consider even launching to a market and things that where we have to develop and also just be patient on. So are you involved yourself like in the 
accelerators and in the funds? Yeah, my role is primarily focused on our expansion. So I go in and help set up, whether it's accelerator or fund. I help okay. set up the entity. It's not just me. Some of the core partners will be part of the initial investment committee. So they see how we take an approach. Um, if they're already an experienced investor, great. Maybe it'll be only one of us and we see how each of us looks at different investments. Because even within our firm, everyone has different metrics and types of founders they like. So it's, it's just a, we just try to make it a collaborative process when we onboard a new entity and team. So I'm part of that process and I still get my hands dirty in all the initial accelerators. But we try to, once the first or second year is done, then I move on. So do you have something like you haven't shared just yet and you would like to share about some preferences and you had to fight, fight your way to your corner really to get a startup joining or get a partner in or something like that because this is the reality of things sometimes when we're in the entrepreneurial world some people might think that it's all ideal but at the end of the day we're, we're dealing with humans right people and preferences i've stated this publicly but it's a funny story i can say this now because he's our one of our core partners is uh eugene kim so he's our managing partner for spark labs korea he has our accelerator and is involved in some of the local funds there. I knew Eugene personally before, and he worked under one of my friends when he was at Naver, which is Korea, South Korea's leading internet portal. And if you meet him, he's, he's very sort of jovial, always happy. I've never seen him angry. Like the most he's, oh, I'm mad or something. He'll say it like that. Right. So he doesn't really, I would say have a bad bone in his body. And so it's very unlike me where I, I think I'm generally nice, but also have a bit of an edge and I don't mind conflict. So when my co-founders, Jimmy and Hanju, they met with Eugene, they had concerns about him being too nice and also him having the right sort of drive. Is he going to really push things? But I think they were just going on obviously surface level cues and Eugene has proved, to, proved himself out tenfold where he it's not really about hours work, but he does work 80, 100 hours a week. He just wants to get things done. He doesn't complain. If he delegates something to some of his team, maybe a weakness is sometimes he just does it if they take too long. If they, if something doesn't get done, he'll want to do it. So Eugene is definitely one of those get it done types, but we almost didn't bring him on board because of his sort of two nice surface level traits. And so I always joke around with my co-founders. I'm like, I don't believe we didn't hire Eugene because you guys thought he was too nice. Did you find out? When did he find out about that? Oh, it was like two, two months in. It was like a couple months. Oh, in. okay. When he really, okay. you know, when he came on board and improved himself. I mean, it was really quick. So yeah. yeah, that's something that, you know, I still once in a while rib my co-founders about. I have another thing here because that's nothing new really, but let's move to the maybe investment part somehow, or, or even the acceleration part, get started with. When you're going to get, let's say, a founder or a team to join, you look first for the people, who are they, how they are, how they behave, then the product and the market. This is clearly the same right now, it's nothing new, but is there anything else you look at or you look for? Because just, we went through a period where everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur and have a startup and where we might still be in the hype, maybe more or less in different places, but has this evolved for you? 
I'm not going to say change. That's why I'm using the word evolve. I, I don't think it's changed for me personally. I've never really talked about it in depth with my partners. But for me, yeah, it's still about the, the founders and their character and certain things that I like and prefer. One of the things that I do look for is whether they're teachable. It sounds a little corny, maybe. Whether they are driven to the point and stubborn enough in their vision, but not absolute, right? So they have to be teachable to some degree where they know when, once they hit a wall that it is a wall and that they can't get around it and they'll, they'll make the right sort of adjustments. So that's something that mm -hmm. he wants. And then it's not like they have to listen to everything I say. I don't, I don't really care about that. But as long, as long as they at least listen, consider uh, whether it's my voice or other voices, because that's what I even tell all of our founders or entrepreneurs that I'm just talking to. I'm like, oh yeah, you could take the advice that I provide, but also check it with other people and then you make the best decision. So that's what you want, at least for entrepreneurs to, to have the ability to listen and then make adjustments. I think other characteristics probably a little more um, strict on than my partners. It was about ethics and, and, and principles and how they pitch certain things. Because I, I think it's a combination of trying to get your idea across and being a salesperson. But me personally, I don't like it when they... I think exaggerate too much. I think some of my partners are more forgiving on that part because they're like, they're just trying to pitch and, you know, close a deal. But for me, I think I don't like it if they exaggerate too much and go too much into that gray area. And I know it's hard to measure, but maybe I'm a, a little bit of a boy scout in that aspect. So what's your process like? Because you, you know exactly what you want or what you don't want, let's say, but then how long does it take you to make the final decision? Do you trust, let's go back to the name of the podcast. Do you trust your gut? Do you listen to your gut? Or do you have specific questions you ask or you look at the body language? How do you do it? Just like visually take us behind the scenes of a scenario where you have to make a decision. Yes, no, maybe. I don't think you, you'll like to hear this, but I, I'm not a gut person, right? I, okay. I think I've gone that from my early 20s because... Maybe initially because I started in politics and there was a lot of smooth talkers, I think more than like corporate salespeople. I, I think anyone could make a very good first impression or even second. And then I think it takes several times to get beyond that and see their sort of true character. So that's even, I would say, in the startup world or even uh, in sports. One thing I, I commonly say is you don't, you don't know uh, if a person plays basketball, you don't know their true character until they're on the court because they could always be very proper and nice. And then we're on their basketball court. And when it's intense and physical, they'll all of a sudden become assholes. And so I think the startup world could be the same where you're in this intense environment and in the corporate world, you were great, right? Like everyone loved you, et cetera. But all of a sudden it fits your co-founder or an exec on the startup. And things are more on the line. And when, when fires are, are happening and you have to react suddenly, sometimes like these negative qualities that never surface. So it's not like you could get through that during the whole investment process with the company, but you do try to find characteristics of the founders and how they really are. And I think that's hard to read. So I, I think it does take a couple meetings and other partners to really look at the founders and get their view. 
Um, sometimes maybe you'll really like the person and you don't see any faults from the first couple of meetings and stuff. So that's what you try to filter for, for obviously no process is perfect. It's like with anyone that's interviewing someone for a job position, it is really hard to read people. Okay. So you don't have a special, even after a couple of meetings and so on, you might make your decision. You're not going to take everyone uh, to a basketball game. So yeah, 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 exactly. There's certain qu like questions or things that I might try to ask. But uh, yeah, again, it's, if I could take him to a basketball, play basketball, that'd be great. I'd be up for that. So <laughs> yeah, and I'm basketball. But so the YC application process, I would say, is much smoother than what I thought it would be. It's not how Google used to interview people, try to do have trap questions and things like that. What's your view on the application process also for startups and founders? Yeah, so I think the application is the first sort of filter, right? But even that isn't perfect because I know from our different accelerators, you'll get, it's not often, but you'll get a handful or maybe one or two every round where it could be not offending engineers, but it could be some engineer that's horrible just writing the description of their company. And then, so that's why, let's say Eugene on a certain, let's say if there's several hundred that apply, he, every batch, he'll want to interview the final 80 to 100, which is very tedious. But he actually goes through this because he says that there's all these, a handful of these engineer types that are just horrible at the written form. And then when he actually interviews them, he's, oh, this is a good company. So he's always okay. surprised by that process because there's, you'll, it's not often, but you will find this one or two or three that just can't fill out a form which is amazing. Do you have fun along the way? So question here, there are, if you want, emerging companies that tell you, we can help you assess your application or your pitch through AI. So what's your view on that? I don't think I have a view because we haven't tried it out. If we try it out and it's helpful, I think that would be good. It goes back to probably the problem of how, how well it's written and some people just don't write things well. AI is at that stage where they could pick up the nuances. Because we're not even looking at how well it's written. Sometimes you're just looking at the product and how it's described. So you're like, oh, that's an interesting product. So the rest of the application might not make any sense. So I don't know if yeah. AI could really pick that out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just came across a few like that. And, I, and my question was like, how? That was before Gen AI, like before mm. it became prominent. But I was like, how does it actually work? I wouldn't want to go through this because I just felt, as, as you're saying, I, I don't know if it would work, but the thing is you have to pay to get assessed by AI as well so on some occasions. So I, yeah, that's why I just wanted to see if you have any experience with that or thoughts. So you mentioned network also. What's the role? Like, first of all, how did you build your network and how is your network supporting the founders at what stage? I think I've always been a, a good network and, and that's with a lot of my partners. Mm -hmm. I would say just cause we are on a personal level, I'm just one of those people that keeps in touch with everyone from probably junior high and high school on. I, I don't think it's like, I don't think I ask anything of them. I'm just friends to be friends. And so I think that approach has served me well in terms of building out a very expansive network. And then that has allowed me to, in the professional realm, also be, I would say, sensitive and thoughtful when we ask people for help. So that's helped 
build these relationships globally. And so a, a lot of my partners, not all, because everyone has different sort of strengths and weaknesses, a fair amount of my partners are similar or, or have different approaches. My co-founder, Jenny, who I did my first two startups with, and he's my co-founder for Spark Labs. If you meet him, he's very, also actually similar to Eugene, he's very jovial. He makes people laugh. So people get attracted to that. He's very sincere and, and nice, but he's also very sharp. So people, some people are also attracted to that aspect of him. And so that's how he also built a very, I would say, strong global network. And then he was in early in the online gaming space. He's met people from U from the U.S. and France and the U.K. And so we capitalized on all these relationships when we launched Spark Labs. And that's how it also helps our founders, because since a thousand years ago, everything is done through relationships, especially in the business world. And then I think it still goes down to some of these old school philosophies where it really is about trust and what a person says in terms of their word. So I, I think we've been very good at that is keeping our word and, and building that trust. And I would say sort of integrity in our whole process. Yeah. I just felt like interrupting you before and saying, I can't believe you didn't keep in touch with your kindergarten folks. <laughs> You travel all the time, right? Yeah, obviously before COVID and after COVID, travel was picked mm -hmm. up again, especially now to, to the Middle East region. And just before moving on to the next chapter, I, I have a question here since you're also, maybe we have some founders from Riyadh listening to this, I don't know, but to listeners out there, when's the right time to start? When's the right time to move on? When's the right time to pivot? What's your view? How would you give some advice on that? It's pretty broad, but yeah, I, I think the right, there, there's no right time to start. I, I think it's once you have, you've tested your idea and then you've at least found, I would say one co-founder just cause it's statistically proven that a startup succeeds exponentially more if you have at least one co-founder. So two people, equal partners starting out. You have the idea that you've at least thought out and think you could build. And then it's just in terms of probably initially mapping out how are you going to fund it, right? Whether it's credit cards or your savings or friends and family and how long, because there's all these sort of the risk factors that you really do have to take into account. I think that's why the average age of entrepreneurs, at least in the U.S. is still 40, 41, because it's either you start out when you don't have that much money, but also don't have that much expense in your twenties, or it has to be further in your career when you built up a nest egg and you could take that risk. So I think those all go into account in terms of where you are in life, the idea, and then also finding that co-founder, which sometimes takes a while, I think. So yeah, that's on the start side. The pivot is always the hard part, right? It's mm -hmm. knowing whether your product really won't work out. And sometimes you could tell that by metrics. If it's some type of consumer app, if the numbers aren't there and you're not getting the retention rates and it's below like 20%, or if it's really bad, if it's below 10% um, after six month period, nine month period, I do think it's time to pivot. Right? And it's even just being realistic with yourself. I remember early on, I would, it's funny because one of the co-founders, it was a consumer facing app and we we're just testing this. And I was like, if most people at that time, I was like, oh, most people, they maybe will use like 710 apps on their phone. I say, is this really one of them? I, would you use your app every day? <laughs> the founder said, 
No, I wouldn't. <laughs> that was funny. So I was like, I don't think it's there yet. So you obviously have to find that. And so those are easy, I think, indicators. The other parts are, could be more difficult if it's like enterprise software or something like that. Cause you get initial, it's difficult to sometimes get the feedback from corporates on whether it'll work. And, and some people say, oh, I need this, but then there might be other factors on why they can't purchase or onboard your product. I think what you're saying here is like really to do good research to get answers that are valid, not just answers that you want to hear. And I think this is part of it. When you mentioned the testing and seeing if your product would work, it's not about asking your mom or your sister or even leading whoever is going to test it in that sense that might not be who's going to be using it and telling you it's brilliant. I guess this is a big misconception here on the testing side of things and doing research. I'd say the founder doesn't have at least one co-founder. That's kind of a no-go. Do you always look for a technical co-founder as well? Yeah, I would say generally that'd be the case. Mm-hmm. Maybe in unique situations. Or if it's not tech-related startup, sometimes we've invested in non-tech, like whether it's a okay. food or, or design idea or something. And for the most part, just going back to the co-founder thing, we do generally require it. And I think that's with a lot of accelerators in the world right, where they want at least yeah. two co-founders. But we have backed maybe a handful of solo founders, but it's less than five, I think, out of the five. Okay. Wow. Okay. So you guys invest in different industries, hardware, software, everything. So you don't have specific preferences, right? Yeah, we're generalists. So we invest across the board. The yeah. only thing well, only category is probably pharma because we really don't have that expertise or deep network in that area. Is that what you're doing everywhere as well? Because you said that you have the agritech and you have different specialized accelerators, but this is not linked to the types of investments you do, right? Globally. Yeah, globally we're generalists, but on the accelerator side, yeah. like when we launched in Australia, that was based on factors of the ecosystem. Like we didn't think that the startup ecosystem in Australia was diverse enough to have a general program. So that's why the strength is one strength in that ecosystem is agriculture. So that's why we decided to focus on ag tech, food tech and sustainability there. I, I think it depends. Even Taiwan, we launched a general program, but we were wondering if it should be a little more hardware centric because it is mainly populated with hardware engineers. Uh, A lot of the major ODMs in the world are there that make laptops for HP and other companies. Foxconn's there also. After talking with Edgar, our managing partner there, he thought there was still a strong enough space to do a general program. And, And it proved out to be true. The software developers in that market are much stronger than we initially believed. I want to move on a bit to the investment pieces that I checked on your website. I'm just going to take one sentence I had here. So you have business is truly global, but investors are not. I just want, just following on, actually, this is good timing. I just want to see your view on the current investing landscape and what's happening today, let's say, because there are lots of founders also that are finding it hard to raise capital at the moment. Yeah, I think those are driven by macro factors. So even if a fund 
has capital to deploy, I think it's just the bar is higher. Yeah. And people are also cautious in terms of which way the global economic trends will go. So there's a bit of cautiousness and also it's not as maybe it's more normalized too, because I think the prior two, three years, I think it was a little too crazy with like Tiger Global making investment almost every day. Yeah, yeah I know. It's <laughs> like that. In Silicon Valley, where I am, I would say a fair amount of investors, you'll hear this term like tourist VCs. So it was a lot of hedge funds that went down to late stage VC just because maybe they saw better return options there. But the only way that the Tigers and even SoftBanks, their vision fund was more of a private equity fund. It was run by ex-bankers. It wasn't like traditional VCs that are former product heads at Google or Facebook or successful entrepreneurs. So the only way that they could win deals is they basically overpay. They overpay two to five X to win the deals. But that also created, I would say, negative market dynamics downstream right, to where we play at the seed and series A. So you would also see the, these overinflated valuations because yeah. of the late stage VC activity. But now I would say everything is normalized. So one is I would say the bar is just back to normal. It's more standard in terms of assessing companies. And also they're not, I don't think investors are feel this FOMO as much as before to get in on a deal when Tiger's sleeping in and, and overpaying. I remember Tiger every day and there was something and then we stopped hearing about them and then what we heard was not what we used to hear and all of that. But the thing is, as you said, there is capital, but it's like there are loops, right? So like the money's there, but it's not invested. Then, then at some point, all the money will have to be released because they have to somehow. So is this kind of a trend that's every few years it happens? Is this also killing some startups? I don't know if you have any opinion on that. I don't think it's like the investor's fault. They're probably there in that situation for whatever reasons. Yeah. They might have burned through too much capital. They might have pivoted. They might have not planned. And some things you can't plan, and that's part of the whole startup journey too. Yeah, is, sure. that, is that good companies will die, right? And some bad companies will survive. Right? So yeah. I think that's all part of the process. Yeah. The thing is, it starts somehow in the US and then it comes to Europe. <laughs> I, I don't know much about Asia, but because I follow out of what's happening. And then a few months later, it's oops, it just hit here, just hit mm. home somehow. And then, yeah, it, it affects everything, right? It's a loop. But you have something else on your investment thesis. It's the future is data. So can you tell me more? Yeah, now that's one of our mantras. Maybe we should update it. Yes. But we, we've always believed that data is core and important in terms of any aspect. And this is something that we wrote like years ago. So I think it's even more important now as we move into this second round of AI, right? Yeah. Where data is core in terms of driving a lot of this, the engines of artificial intelligence. Okay, so that's a mantra to be updated then because you wrote it before you said, but it's, yeah, I didn't know it was all that. Like I had a follow-up thought on this. Is it the way you look at your investments or is it just data, just for the sake of data or what? So this is why I just asked to expand on it. Yeah, no, I think it's still one of our core lenses that, that we look at 
in terms of if there is a data play within that startup, whether it's consumer or enterprise, and is it valuable and useful data, right? Because sometimes there's data that's collected that can't really be monetized. It's also just a, a balance too, in terms of what is collectible. And it doesn't mean that you always have to monetize every piece of data. Jumping back here, I'm just curious with all the AI hype, as you mentioned, is it changing the way you work? Are you using AI-ish tools yourself or are you also like you as a person, as the company or the group of companies, but also is this what you're really looking for in startups now? Yeah, it is part of it. I think I'm a little more tempered in my approach. I do think that it will change the way that things are done. It's just a matter of how quickly. So there, there are things that I've used, obviously, different sort of AI engines and platforms for, right, in terms of <laughs> right, seeing how things might be written or, or getting ideas from that. And uh, it's, I guess it, it makes work sometimes more efficient, not all the time, because sometimes when I, I put something to check, it doesn't come out the way that I want. But I, th I think it's all of the learning process. So some people have incorporated, I know, into their workflow, like every day. I, I just haven't been one of those people. Okay. And for the startups you look at or as a company? Again, it's one of the things that, that we look at, but it's not like we don't do everything AI or generative okay. AI. We look okay. we still look across the board. We're generalists too. Yeah. Okay. And just asking because it's just a hype and there's lots of money being poured in the space. Lots will survive, some will thrive, and some will die, right? We know that one. So I just wanted to see what is it for you. And you came into multiple hubs, obviously, over the years since 2013 or 12, when you launched, right? The first one. But the, the question is here, what impact have you seen after you launched? I think we've seen impact in terms of, I, I would say, the changing of the overall ecosystem, right? In terms of bringing excitement in being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Also, as we discussed before, raising the bar in terms of the potential uh, of the founders yeah. and, and what they could do, really go global from whatever location they're at. And then in terms of just being good actors, I, I would say. So whether it's Korea or Taiwan or other locations we've been, we bring in these different thought leaders and experts from various industries and we share it. Because we could have kept these like closed sessions and only for our portfolio companies. But our mission, because we're not in Silicon Valley, where there's an overabundance of expertise in Seoul and in Taipei and, and now in Riyadh, we want to bring these experts so it's shared to the general public. So it encourages entrepreneurship. So it encourages innovation. It encourages collaboration. We, we just don't say it. We do believe that all ships rise together in these um, less developed ecosystems. So that's our objective. And I think it's worked out. Um, I, I'm not sure, but like South Korea, we built it up from when it was like 100 or 200 people at, at our demo days to now over 3,000. And so it's one of the must-see tech events in South Korea. And it is a must-see tech event in Taiwan that we've also built that up to about 1,200 to 1,500 people for each demo day. So we really built, I would say, excitement in the ecosystem, along with, I would say, hard metrics in terms of, I don't know the numbers in front of me, but in terms of like job creation, we're definitely one of the top three accelerators in terms of follow-on rates. 
So our graduates, approximately 70% get follow-on funding, right? And so we really help them during the program, after and beyond. We're in touch with now a lot of our companies that have raised like their series C or D rounds. Wow. Okay. And then hopefully the founders can become investors in your funds too. So for sure. Uh, yes, hopefully. <laughs> I have a question. Let's talk a bit about your latest hub, right? In Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia. What took you there? Did they approach you? Did you decide to go there? Why there? Is it all about the vision 2030 of the country? Just to highlight for the listeners, it's like this ambitious plan uh, or strategic plan to shift the or diversify the economy, shifting it from oil and gas to other realms and industries. Yeah. So just some background is before COVID, we were actually looking at our next sort of expansions, especially on the accelerator side into Europe. So we were looking at Stockholm, which we like. We've invested in a handful of startups there already. Berlin and even Paris with a longer view. So we looked at some of these cities, but obviously it was on hold. But I will say even right before COVID and during, we did get approached by some corporate entities. And it's not our core, but we considered um, some corporate accelerators in Dubai and in Riyadh. So Dubai and also Abu Dhabi. So we had some discussions for the you know prior years. And then coming out of COVID about two years ago, my co-founder Hanju, he jumped back into the startup game after exiting from Hostway and he launched Bespin Global. And then Bespin, they got $100 million plus Series D round from the UAE, from the main telco there. And so that sort of created interest and I think the government and others, players involved, they knew that Hanju was a co-founder Spark Labs. So they asked us actually to launch a fund in the UAE. So we're in process and we'll announce that later this year, but we're in process to launch Spark Labs Abu Dhabi. Okay. But concurrently last year, a year ago, I went to FII in Riyadh, their main investment conference. And through my colleague, Samir, his day job is running a private equity fund in Pakistan. But he likes startups, so he's a venture partner, a part-time partner with us on early stage investments. So when he knew that I was going to Riyadh, he said, hey, you should meet my friend Ivan or Ivan there. And so I met with Ivan. We hit it off and he loved what we're doing. And we started to talk about, oh, it's a good time because Saudi Arabia is now looking more inward to invest there, develop their startup ecosystem, to mature companies, obviously transition beyond the oil economy. So we started discussions with one of the government entities, NTPP, in December. And unlike other governments across the, the world, they moved very quick. Within a month, they gave us a decision and support. And then I flew there for their LEAP conference, which was earlier this year. Oh, yeah. In uh, February, where... It was amazing, like over a hundred thousand people attended. And so we had a signing ceremony there and then that's how we kicked off. We were preparing everything. And then we just had our kickoff event in Riyadh last uh, Thursday. So I just got back this weekend from Riyadh, but it was, it was good energy and, and we were excited about this first batch and the fund that we're launching there. 
Okay, that's cool. So yeah, that was early in November 2023 that you launched in Riyadh. It's, it's cool that lots of things are happening in the region. What is it that uh, excites you about the region, like based on what you've seen, the, other than the fact that the government in Saudi Arabia moves pretty quickly? I, I think there's definitely, well, I could say for Saudi Arabia, maybe I don't see it as much, I would say, in some of the other countries in the region, is that there is a drive and competitiveness there. So I think that's different than some of the other countries that might be less competitive. I mean, maybe it has to do with the size. I don't know, but I think it's maybe part of the culture too. Or maybe it's MBS pushing down and, and saying that we need to get the country prepared uh, for the transition. Okay. You definitely sense that the drive and urgency and also just the fact is that they're well researched. Like they, one thing I was impressed by, I will say, I'm not to say it because I'm whatever partners with one of the agencies, but they are well-researched in terms of just the innovation and startup space. And so I think that's what allowed them to make a fast decision or a quick decision to partner with us. And I, I think it's worked out and I think they're happy in terms of the quality of, of the first batch that we brought in, the people that we have brought in so far and will bring in. A lot of successful entrepreneurs already that spoke or will speak and just share their knowledge. I, I think they're excited about that aspect. Yeah, and it's a pretty young population also in Saudi Arabia. Like what keeps you excited? First, what I enjoy is just sharing knowledge and stories with founders. Because right? mm -hmm. I've been a founder before yeah. and that's something that's just fun, right? Telling people, oh, well, I wasn't that successful a founder and this is why, right? These are the mistakes that I made and just really trying to help people out. I think that's what drives uh, most of the partners or all the partners at Spark Labs. I, I think we enjoy that process and just seeing people succeed, right? You want to be at its core. You want to be people that are happy for other people's success. So I think that is, is what drives us. And it doesn't matter uh, in terms of geography, race, or religion, I, I think it's just really satisfying to see people have a plan and a vision for their company and for them to execute and succeed. So I think that's been the enjoyable aspect and, and the fun aspect. What are you listening to or reading? Like, where do you find information? Because there's so much of it. So how do you stay like up to date with what's happening? I just, I think I, I read a lot, especially in terms of just news and tech news. So I, I've done that actually since my twenties. So I'd set aside like the first 30 minutes of my day to go through all the sort of tech press and, and yeah. journals. And then when I have time, obviously reading different books, but I think what's easiest lately is podcasts <laughs> like yours. Okay. Right. So, so you listen first, to podcasts as well. Okay. I, I do either podcasts or. Yeah, different interviews and stuff. I, I think one recent one that I just, it's been around, but what I have enjoyed is The Rest is History. It's a okay. pretty good podcast in terms of just overview of different periods of history. Okay. And like last thing for you here, are we in an AI bubble or not? Bubble in terms of may, maybe the valuations, because that's the only area, at least in Silicon Valley, where uh, valuations haven't gone back down to normal <laughs> prices. So anything AI, I think it has been overinflated 
And in terms of the actual innovations, I think it's real now, right? Versus, I forgot exactly, like six, seven years ago, there was another sort of AI wave that hit. And the same thing like today, like 80% of the business plans for one year was mentioned AI, right? Because they're all trying to get funding and stuff like that. So that already happened in a prior cycle. And I was there for that. But I think now, I think real progress has been made where you really do see the impact in terms of work and life and business. So it's not a bubble in terms of actual, I would say, impact. It's just a bubble in terms of pricing. So when you see AI in or listen to pitch decks or pitches with AI and revolutionizing the word and some buzzwords like that, does it excite you or it's uh, next? It doesn't excite me. I'll just take a look at it, right? Like any company. So it, whether it's AI or not, then you just assess what the company is and what the product is. But if it's AI clay, so I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll be a little skeptical, right? Because if yeah. it's just like one layer on top of chat GTP, I, I don't think that's a real long-term viable product. As we even recently found out in a lot of startups, they can't base it on just like a chat. Yeah, yeah, something on top. It, it has to be something obviously more sort of revolutionary. That whole word is also blockchain AI, just adding the words to, and then you lose uh, what they're doing. That's so, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'll, yeah, of course. Like I said, I'll, I will totally dismiss it. I'll be skeptical, skeptical okay. until I, I dig down in terms of what the actual product is and what they want to do. All right, cool. No, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add? I really enjoyed this and I know you're jet lagged, so thank you so much. Yeah, I'm super jet lagged, but it's okay. <laughs> So sorry, hopefully I wasn't too much of a, of a drag. But no, it, no, thank you for fun. having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you've derived value from the show, you can subscribe on platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to know more about you and your preferences to continue producing this kind of content. So type in go.god.com slash talks. It takes 60 seconds to complete. That's go.ggutt.com slash talks. To gain more insights, visit our website at ggutt.com. This is wgutt.com and see you next time.